mighty God and everlasting one, we come before you asking for your grace and mercy as we study this passage of Scripture concerning the wickedness of man. We are glad, Lord, that in the midst of sin, though the overwhelming amount of verses, even in this short section that we read, turns to the wickedness of men, yet we still find hope in that Noah found grace. You are the God of grace. You are the God of the covenant of grace that ministers to us. And we pray, O Lord, that as the word is brought forth, that it is heard, that you would cause us, as the psalmist said, to hide it in our heart, that we might not sin against you, that we might be forgiven, that even though you tell us you will not strive long with sin, Yet you would strive along with us as a result of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. We pray that you would help us to set our eyes upon him, he who is the living word, as we study this passage this morning. And we so ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We read Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Follow along. Now it came to pass... When men began to multiply in the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace. In the eyes of the Lord. In this particular passage, there are two themes that are running. One theme is God's eminent destruction of the world by flood, everything, and God's salvation to Noah. Now, The text says in verses 1 and 2, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took all whom they chose. The sons of God and the daughters of men. Now the term sons of God is somewhat unclear. Some believe them to be fallen angels. Some believe them to be kings who were possessed by demons. And some believe them to be of the godly line of Seth. Now, since we're dealing with a book of genealogies, it is most reasonable to believe that the sons of God were God-worshippers, and the daughters of men were of the wicked line of the God-haters, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The Sethites took to themselves the daughters of Cain, which they were not supposed to do. Even as we find in various other passages in Scripture, such as in Job, where the sons of God came together and then Satan was amongst them, as we had talked before in other sermons, that that is talking about men coming together to worship God. And there, in the midst, Satan is. Here, we find the sons of God, the line of Seth, 
not fallen angels, not men possessed by demons, but Sethites. The lines become mixed. The godly took to themselves women from the line of the serpent. Why did they do this? Well, because they coveted. They coveted. They saw, according to the verse, which means to check out or look over. Adam was given Eve, but the sons of God took those they chose. But they did it as Eve did the forbidden fruit. Like Eve saw, took, and ate, well, the wickedness is found in seeing, taking, and acting in the same kind of twisted desires. And thus, they mixed the lines together. As a result of the rebellion that he sees across the face of the earth, God sets limits upon the amount of time he will allow men to continually be wicked. Genesis 6.3 The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Now, the spirit of God's striving is not simply meaning the presence of the Holy Spirit, but the power of the working of the spirit in the preaching of God's word, Noah was a righteous preacher in which he had a message to follow God. Second Peter 2.5 even calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. God will not strive with men any longer. He will not make his word effectual to them any longer. God will not continue to make the preaching of the word continue to be effectual among men. Rather, he's going to judge the world because men are wicked. Men are flesh, God says. Or rather, they are filled with evil desires that are wicked all the time. Now, it would obviously be strange for God to say that he would not strive with men because they're flesh, because that's the way that he created them, flesh and bones. But rather, that's not what flesh means here. Fleshiness is now, throughout the Bible, a signifying word meaning wicked and evil of fleshly desires. It's vain for the Spirit of God to strive and dispute with the fleshly desires of wicked men, which are continually wicked and evil all of the time. That would be wrong for the Spirit to continue to do that, who is incapable of right spiritual reason. As a result, instead of striving, God is going to judge them. When will he do it? He says, 120 years. Now, this can't mean that men will now only live for 120 years. Abraham lived to be 175. Isaac lived to be 180. Shem even lived to be 600 afterwards. When God spoke to Noah, these particular words about the destruction of the human race and all the other creatures on the earth, which he did, he spoke in the 480th year of Noah's life. The promise was made to Noah at that time. And that set the time frame for when the flood would come and destroy the earth, which happened when Noah was 600 years old, 120 years later. Now, in verse 32, there is a note that Noah was 500 years old and had sons. That's in the last chapter in verse 32. He, had, he was 500 years old and had sons. And now we come into... This chapter and the sixth chapter, which is after that verse, and some people will say, well, look, it can't be that because Noah was already 500 years old here. 
But one of the things that you have to remember when reading the scriptures is that you're not always dealing with a chronological time frame with everything. What, what is going on here is it's, it's an explanation of redemptive history at this point. Sometimes chronologies are out of order, as when Terah died, but then later after it says that Terah died, Isaac was born to Abraham. But Terah was still alive when Isaac was born to Abraham. It's just a matter of dealing with the genealogy in the right way, or the chronology in the right way. So even though in chapter 5 and in verse 32 it says that Noah was 500 years old, this particular information was given to Noah even before that. That particular chapter was put together to demonstrate the relief that would come as we've already gone through the genealogies there. But Noah received the promise at 480, and then at 600 the flood came. Now, there's somewhat of a commentary. The mixed breed was born. Genesis 6-4, there were giants on the earth. And afterward, when the sons of God came and daughters of men, they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men of old, men of renown. Now, these Nephilim, or giants, we're not necessarily sure who they are. It could simply be a repetition in the Hebrew of fierce warriors, which is said here, men of renown, mighty men, fierce warriors at this time. But the point that Moses is making in this particular passage is that men became heroes. Men were heroes in the eyes of men's eyes instead of God. They were bragging about men of renown, but they weren't bragging about God. There were successful warriors at that time, renowned men with names, men with external distinguishing marks in one way or the other. But men were becoming heroes instead of God being their heroes. And thus we see the commentary right after that. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. It was because of his pride that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wickedness, evil. The words was great means many or much. It can mean chief or captain. It's the most. It's the worst. It's the greatest. And it was all through the earth, everywhere. There was no place where it wasn't. Every means whole, all, complete, absolutely everything. All of their imagination, all of the intents, it means to inform and fashion plans and purposes for one's life and the mind. So every single thing that they purposed, every single plan that they made, everything that they fashioned, everything that was in their mind was wicked. It also says of his heart, which means the totality of man's inner being. The entirety of the image of God was fallen and wicked. The heart being the spiritual center of a person. And we find those words, was only, which actually comes from the word meaning thin. Only this and no other. Evil, completely and totally, contrary to good, no good whatsoever at any time, all the time, all the day long, continually, every day. You can hear the words all through this particular passage. It's totally inclusive. And so in verses 6 and 7, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will destroy man whom I am created on the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, the Lord was sorry, and then it says, 
again in verse 7, he was sorry. Both of the words sorry or grieved that way mean the same thing. The word sorry is actually a very good translation. It's not the same kind of sorry when we are sorry, when we have done something wicked and we are sorry for it. He is grieved or sorrowful from what he sees on the earth. God becomes grieved when people sin, which is why we are exhorted, grieve not the Spirit of God by which you have been sealed. God knows that there is a better way for men to walk than to walk in sin. And he's grieved when he sees men walking in sin. The whole earth was under the sorrow of God. It was everywhere. And he was grieved about everything. And the flood came to destroy everything. This type of sorrow is linked to emotional sorrow and pain and writhing and being hot with anger and being weary and being irritated. And we'll see that as a result of being this way, as this accommodating language is coming to us by the pen of Moses to explain how we should think about sin in the, in the relationship that God has with it, the sorrow is manifested in the flood and judgment is coming upon the wicked. It's the way that Moses wants us to think about how bad things were at this time. But there's a mark of hope. Even with seven verses of evil and wickedness, there's a mark of hope in verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, one man stood out from the rest because God's grace had reached down and touched him. That was Noah. The word Found, no, a found grace means to gain acceptance and has the connotations of being captured by God. Noah was captured by God's grace. And grace is what made Noah accepted or captured before God. Grace is the unmerited favor of God resting upon a person simply through the pleasure of God's own will. It's the blessing of God, it's salvation. And Noah, even in the midst of all of this, found this grace or was captured by it. The overwhelming aspect of this whole section is the wickedness of sin. So let's look at that as we talk about sin. The wickedness of sin in men. The Bible mentions the word sin over 475 times in this particular way, in the same way that we're seeing it in this chapter. We know it's an important subject, especially when it's mentioned almost as much as the holiness of God. To ponder the immense treatment the Bible gives the doctrine of sin is actually mind-boggling in that way. Think about Genesis 2, 8-17. God makes man, puts him in the garden, he's created. Uh, he instructs the man to follow his word, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This time of testing God gave them. God was saying, listen to my word. Don't eat of the tree and you'll live. If you eat of it, you'll die. Then the serpent came into the picture and she tempt he tempted Eve and she ate. And, uh, she gave to her husband and he ate. and They fell. They sinned. They failed the test. And God cursed the serpent for deceiving them. And he cursed the woman and the man for disobeying him. And Adam and Eve were now sinners in the eyes of God. They were consequently cast from the garden into the wilderness away from his presence. And as a result of that, now that infection 
applies to all men, which is exactly why Paul in Romans 5.12 will say, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. Adam's sin was representative of everyone. And Adam was the representative on behalf of the whole human race. And people are not sinners because they sin. Rather, they sin because they're sinners in Adam. We've inherited a fallen nature, which Adam acquired after falling from grace in the garden. We have a rotten nature that is corrupt. In this sin nature, men inherit a wicked and an evil heart. That is why in Genesis 6-5 it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intent and the thought of his heart was only evil continually. It's all it was. The heart, being the spiritual center of man's being, it's the place where the mind, emotions, and spirit all reside in a collective whole together. It's the whole man. And so whenever you see the heart, the heart doesn't think. The heart beats. It moves blood through the body. It's what it does. But, biblically speaking, it's the spiritual center of everything. It's the culmination of all things in the person. The sinful heart is only evil. And anyone who has one of these hearts is evil. And every intent or motive and thought or every idea is only evil continually. Remember, the word continually means day in and day out. This is how they are all the time. All day long, every day, the whole of man's heart is evil, constantly. Now, someone may ask, when does a man's heart become evil? Well, we know the answer to that, as David stated and as we sung this morning in Psalm 51. In sin, my mother conceived me. The very moment that David was conceived in his mother's womb, he was a sinner, as the psalmist states. Adam's sin, his sin nature is given to all his offspring, including children, babies. They're all fallen. That's why Paul says, collectively, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23. So, the depravity or sinfulness of man is a doctrine which is vital to salvation. You see how God explains the way he explained what he explained in these few verses. For seven verses... He said, sin, 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 wickedness, sadness, pain, suffering, evil, but wait, one little short blurb, but Noah found grace. You have to understand sin before you can understand salvation. Oftentimes, people in the church today think that man still has the capacity to be good in some way. They think people are able in and of themselves to do works of righteousness before God without the help of God at all. But unregenerate people cannot work righteously before God. As a matter of fact, they do exactly what God says they do in Genesis 6. They're evil continually. Saved people, people who are regenerated by the power of the Spirit of God, are able to work righteously. They can do good things, but only because they have the Spirit dwelling in them. The effects of the Spirit are seen through them. When someone says that they can believe in Christ for salvation on their own or choose to follow him on their own before the Spirit of God changes their heart, they're saying that man is still good in some capacity, that he's not fallen in some way, that he's not been totally corrupted, but that would be the very opposite of the reason why God destroyed the entire planet. They can still perform righteous deeds, they think, like choosing salvation. 
But at that point, they're not following the Bible. They're following men like Pelagius and Arminius. Man is a sinner because of Adam. And from the very time of conception, he has a sin nature. And that sin nature is what causes men to commit sins. Because of this nature, man's whole disposition is evil, and God seizes sees it as evil, and it remains evil until the Spirit of God will change that person and will apply the blood of Christ to that person to change them and give them the capacity to believe. But, as God is demonstrating here, and the point he wants us to understand in the depravity of man, is that the total person, the mind, the emotions, the spirit, it ha- they have been completely affected by the fall. They were so bad and so rotten and so corrupted completely and so depraved totally and all of the faculties were so evil that God was grieved enough to destroy the entire planet as a result of seeing it. So whenever we talk about the depravity of man and we see from God's lens how wicked man is, we have to remember that we can never have the gospel of the good news without really understanding the bad news without really understanding how God sees men in relationship to his holiness. We must get get through the bad news before we ever get the good news about the Savior. The problem is is that people want the good news. They just want to hear verse 8, Noah found grace. They don't want to hear anything about verses 1 through 7. The problem is that they want good news, and then they want more good news without ever hearing anything about the bad news, but the cross in and of itself. Grace in general, all through the Bible, only answers to those who are sinful, not good. You have to have the bad news first. That's why Jesus is the physician for the sick, not the healthy, as he said to the Pharisees. Man must call out to God and throw himself upon his mercy to be saved. He must follow the directive of the tax collector in Luke 18, 13 and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But men need to be humbled by their sin before Jesus Christ can exalt them. And the only way that that can happen is when the Holy Spirit comes to the heart of a man and changes that heart so that he has the capacity by faith to respond rightly and that he might repent and turn from his wicked ways. He has to die to sin and live to righteousness. And there's nothing in the passage here, nothing in the passage of the first seven verses that shows that these men have any capacity to do anything other than wickedness unless we hit verse 8, unless we find grace. He must mourn over his depravity and see himself as totally helpless, poor in spirit. He must see his life hanging by a thread over the depths of hell and its flames, knowing full well that God is the Redeemer and that God must change him. And without that change, he can't be saved. He's in the same boat as these men were, or actually, ironically, without a boat, because the flood was coming. and They were going to be destroyed completely and totally by God. Without recognizing by the Spirit's power man's total depravity, following the intents and dictates of their heart, men will never be saved because their hearts are only evil continually. And then there's another thing that we don't hear very much about. The striving of God's Spirit in the Word. You know, we always talk about God being long-suffering. This is the best way to draw sinners in, to just present the Gospel without 
all of that law stuff. Don't present the law, just present the gospel. Just give the good news, don't give the bad news. But we find, even in these verses, that God says he's not going to strive with man any longer. Because of man's wickedness, he's not going to strive with them. God will only put up with bringing men the means of grace only for so long. If the Spirit is not striving with Noah's preaching any longer, how will God put up with the wickedness of men today? Think about how many men were around in Noah's day in which he was preaching as a righteous preacher the things of Christ, in which Peter says Christ was preaching through him. We know that God is not going to destroy the earth by a flood again, but he makes no mention in giving men ample time or opportunity today or any other time of hearing the word. He simply says, while it is still called today, you do these things. Today, right now, immediately, you do these things. You listen to God now. There are places in the evangelism of the nation where God tells Paul to go here, but don't go over here. Acts 16.7, after they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. God only strives for so long. If the Spirit's efficacy is not in the word to convert men, his Spirit will not strive with men to change them. God was upset that men were acting wickedly, and as a result, he would not bless them. Instead, he judged them. Is that not grieving the Spirit of God? Ephesians 4. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Even Paul, when he was talking with the Israelites, he told them, Acts 7.51, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Think about how God thinks about men sinning. Think about how God thinks about men sinning. Hebrews 10, For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. When men despise the ministry of the word, God will not strive with them anymore. Christopher Love says it this way, God will not follow the word with efficacy to those who either condemn or deny the ministry thereof. It was exactly his commentary on the verses that we're studying this morning. God's not striking anymore. He's not bringing the word to them anymore. He's done. He's not putting up with it anymore. He's going to judge them instead. Paul, in Thessalonians, says it in a different way. He says that it's men's filling up. When they fill up the measure of their sins, then wrath comes upon them to the uttermost. God tells Abraham that about the Amorites. Their sin is not yet complete, God says to them. There is a certain point where God will strive no longer. When men increase in sin and continue to love sin more than God, even in the midst of the righteous preaching that goes on, like the righteous preacher, Noah, God will not strive with men any longer, and he will not make the word effectual to them any longer. His spirit no longer strives with them, and God is sovereign over wicked, rebellious men, and if he decides to withhold the effectual working of his spirit, as he did in Noah's day and other days, he has the right to do so even today. God may remove his spirit in making the word effectual or convicting men of their sin after the act. That is why consciences get seared that is why men today pull their sin as if with a cart and a rope in the view of all. 
God is long-suffering, and that's true. But don't think that for a minute that the patience of the Lord could not be worn out by men. The state of the world in Noah's time was unfit for the purpose in which God created it, which was for his glory. They were sinning. How long might it be until this world again will seem unfit and the end shall come? How long will that be? How long will it take? That's why we hear that Christ could return at any moment. We hear that message over and over again as a guilt trip. But really, we need to be thinking about that in terms of its reality, that God will not strive with men very long. The response to that. What do we think, then, in response to the teaching of man's depravity and God's striving with men? Well, first we have to be sure that we understand what that depravity is, how we understand it. What does it mean to be dead in sin? Remember like Ephesians 2.5 says that we're dead in sin? Well, the word dead means lacking power to move, lacking power to feel, lacking power to respond, extinguished like dead coals. You can kind of visualize dead coals, coals that have burned out, they're totally useless. Or something that's inanimate or inert, like dead matter. Or it's no longer producing or functioning, it's exhausted like a dead battery, or lacking power or effect, like a dead law. The word dead is lifeless. It's a dead person. It's a corpse. It's useless. It's ineffective. It's not kind of alive. It's dead. Ephesians doesn't make any bones about it. It contains the idea and implies that men are dead as a result of what Genesis is talking about as a result of this infection, that sinners are sinners from conception, and they are, in essence, stillborn in that way. Or, we might even say, the qualities of a walking zombie. They're affected in all of their parts. The heart, the mind, the affections, the body. They're fallen in every way. And it's different than actual sins that we commit. Original sin and actual sin are different. Actual sins is when we go out and we do things that are bad or we think bad thoughts or we commit sins against God. We sin because we're sinners. Those actual sins come out of our habitual sin that we have, our original sin that's in us. And there's still the remnant of remaining sin even though Christians are Christians. Each human being is at enmity with God from the moment of conception because they're born dead in sin. And when God sees that, he sees that as something terrible. Adam's sin is transferred to our account. So we're sinners right in the eyes of God. And our best works, as Isaiah says, are filthy rags. James Janaway, in his little book, A Token for Children, says little children are not too little to go to hell. Why? Because they're infected. We don't put up with the fanciful invention of the age of accountability, thinking that at a certain age they suddenly become responsible for their sin. That's immaterial, because Adam's sin has already affected them. Since then, each human being is that way. Every human being is in need of being saved. And there's a wrath coming. After the flood, 
As a matter of fact, a lot of years after the flood, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, Jesus, in some of his very earliest descriptions of the kingdom of heaven and what preaching is all about, said, O generation of vipers, who had warned you from, to flee from the wrath to come? The wrath is coming until wrath comes upon them to the uttermost, Paul says. The wrath is coming. You think the flood was bad? Christ, the physician, must come and must operate on our hearts and change us. And once we're changed, and once we see how wicked we are, this idea of our wickedness for the Christian continues to build humility in us. Humility is to know that we're not simply unworthy of grace, but that we're worthless. Humility is to know that we must kiss the Son, lest He be angry with us. That was written to God's people. What did Christ do for you in loosing the chains of your sin? And what is your habitual demonstration to Him for it? Is it devotion? Humility is the repentance of pride, the very opposite of what was going on in Genesis 6 in which God said man is so wicked. Humility is the repentance of pride. Lest you think you have accomplished something or done something when all you have done is sin before God. And we sin far worse than devils do because when we sin, we sin against the grace and blood and cross of Christ. They don't do that. Only we do that. Humility reminds us to see the cup half empty because men are not destitute of righteousness. They're full of unrighteousness. Yet God will help us to be humble and God's Spirit will aid us and knowing this doctrine should cause us to hate our sin. Romans 7.15 For what I am doing I do not understand. For what I will to do that I do not practice. But what I hate I do. That's what we do. If you don't hate your sin, well, then you just don't have the Spirit of God living in you. For just as God was grieved in Genesis 6, He also pours out His grief when His children sin on them and demonstrates it to them. God is grieved when we sin. The Holy Spirit will give us a conviction of grief for the sin that we commit because He lives in us. We're sealed with Him. As a Christian, we should know how to strive to have our sins covered by the blood of the cross just as God covered the earth with a flood, we need to be covered with the cross. So we have to take a lesson from God's striving. Will he bless us in our sin? Will he withhold our, his spirit from us? You know that spiritual levels for Christians exist. People are different and at different levels of being a Christian. The different levels of sanctification. And many times Christians are all over the map. They're striving and reaching for sanctification, but in their sin, how much of God's Spirit will be communicated to them? How long will God be patient with us? Does God get tired of us? Remember, as the prophet said, is God ashamed to be called our God? That's a very interesting verse. Knowing this doctrine should cause us to love Christ all the more, he should increase and we should decrease because he is the one who is the Savior. By his blood, he accepted us, sinners, into his kingdom. He washed us, made us fit. He pardoned our transgressions. 
they were stacked infinitely high before the face of God. But he was the one who died on the cross. He is the Savior. And he is the one who has the ability to save us. We can't save ourselves. We can't do good things. Only he can do that through us. And so we strive with him against our sin. The only way out of that kind of bondage to sin is through Christ. We have to say with Augustine, no one can find rest until they rest in thee. That we do as well. God replaces the heart of stone with the heart of flesh, births us, and then continually strives with us through his spirit that we might be more holy, away from sin and towards righteousness. So even though God won't strive long with wicked men, he strives in a different way with Christians as a result. For the Christian, this doctrine helps us to understand grace. Noah found grace. He was captured by it. He rested in it. Such as his very name means rest. But those who haven't found grace, who haven't been captured, well, God's Spirit strives against them in a different way because he's opposed to them. God is certainly merciful to sinners who throw himself on his mercy, but he will make them that way. But he's also merciful to regenerate sinners as they throw himself on his mercy. They know they must. They know that they need to because God will not strive with men long. God is long-suffering with us. God also, though, has limitations with his long-suffering. The day of judgment comes. It's going to be a scary thing. As we read with Jacob, he swore by the fear of Isaac, capital F, God, the fear. Jacob called God the fear of Isaac. For the Christian, though we're sealed with the Spirit of God, we're instructed not to grieve the Spirit of God by which we were sealed. What kind of effects will we have in our life, around us, with other people, if we continue with sin? What kind of blessings will you expect if you continue to rebel against God, sinning against Him? God strives with us because of sin. That's why striving is even there. How much will He put up with His own people? Here's a couple of verses to go away with. 1 Kings 8, 57 to 58, and Isaiah 10, 25. Both of them are written to God's people. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us nor forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to himself. Why? To walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, which he commanded our fathers. And Isaiah and this is what God says to his people. For yet a little while, and the indignation will cease, as will my anger in their destruction. How long will God strive with us if we continue to sin before him? If we are not really looking to be as holy as God desires us to be. If we are not really serious that way. What does it mean to be a serious Christian in that way? What does it mean to be like Noah and not be like everybody else in his day. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Noah was captured by God's grace, and he lived as thus. Job, Abraham, Isaac, all of these men, David, Solomon, they all had faults. Paul, the chief among the sinners, they're all sinners. But even though we read of their sins, find it in the Bible. Look for it. 
Look for them committing a sin that was heinous before God and then doing it again. I don't find it anywhere in the scripture. That should cause us to really think about the striving that we have with God and how we act before him. God will not strive with men long. Both the unregenerate and even his people. For God will be grieved and will not bless us. We should strive as much as possible by the power of the Spirit. For all of our works are holy by the Spirit of Christ. For the non-Christian, there's a fearful expectation of the day of judgment that's worse than the flood that's coming. Think about the people in the flood. They got the flood and they went to judgment after that. When they fill up the measure of their sin, God requires their life right now. They go and they sit before the judgment seat and they're judged. For the Christian, we grieve the Spirit. Think about that. How long will God continue to bless us if we continue to grieve him? May that be something that presses us to think about Noah's disposition before God in comparison to the others. The total depravity has really ruined us. We have to strive with all of our strength that we would not reflect that ruin, but that we would reflect the Spirit of God which dwells in us to the glory of Christ. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would help us in this. Mighty God, you demonstrate in your word that men were wicked and so wicked, so grievous to you that you, you said that you would not strive with them anymore. With Noah, though, you gave him grace. We so thank you that we have been given grace as we so look to you by faith, justify, repent, continue to be sanctified. We so look to you, O God, in that kind of faith, asking that you would aid us further in our sanctification, that not only would we strive with you, but as Christians we would not fight or strive against you by sinning and transgressing your laws. Instead, Lord, help us to be reminded of what Solomon said, of what Isaiah said, about how your indignation sometimes comes upon your people. Sometimes we're forsaken, yet for a little while I will forsake you, you say. Yet, O oh God, we pray that you would gather us back quickly, that you would cause us not, O oh Lord, to have the Holy Spirit taken from us, as David so said in Psalm 51, but, O oh Lord, that we would be cleansed, that we would be made clean, that we would be whiter than snow, even though our sins are like scarlet. Help us in our sanctification. Coming judgment in the passage in which we're studying demonstrates a fear for us, Lord, that we look to the day of judgment and though it is a scary thing and though there is a trembling about it that we have, let us also rest easy in knowing that we have our oil, that we are like the wise virgins who were ready for the bridegroom to come and that we would sit and that we would have a banquet with him. We so ask that you would bless our heart and mind to strive against sin and to walk with you in such a way that would reflect the same kind of grace that you gave Noah. And we so pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. 
our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L 3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.